Good morning, everyone. Today we'll continue in our series that we are calling Reality Remastered, where we take a past series that we've that have been like really formative in the life of our congregation and our church and remastered them by teaching one Sunday on the topic and then uh, subsequently do a series of podcasts throughout the week on this topic. Now today is a bit different. Today is a huge mashup. This sermon is part gospel and race. This sermon is part everyday mystic. And this sermon is part renewal. It's like just a mashup sermon. And I'm doing that because of where we're at and where our world is at today. Um, But what we're going to be doing on Monday, tomorrow, and through the rest of the week is every single day in our podcast, we're going to be going through a different spiritual practice cards that we have been giving out for a while. There's five of them. Um, And uh, every day we're going to be practicing these practices, disciplines, and teaching you how to do them from... uh, from um, practicing the Sabbath to practicing prayer to practicing um, Lectio Divina. Now, the reason why we're doing that, especially in a time like this, is the the work of renewal, the work of of justice, the work of racial reconciliation is the long game. You don't finish by uh, protesting once or marching once or blacking out your Instagram for a day. That's like, that, those are great efforts. Those are great. They're, I'm not taking anything away from those. Those are great. But the work of racial reconciliation and the work of justice is probably a lifetime of work. And the only way you're going to get sustained over a lifetime of this kind of work is through the trellis of spiritual practices. And so we're going to be looking at them every single day this week with that in mind, with understanding how in the world do we stay involved in the work of reconciliation, of the work of social justice, um, how do we do all that work for, the, for over a lifetime? And it, it, it starts by um, the, the interior work of, of spiritual practices. So please, um, you, can, uh, you could send us an email with your address and we'll make sure that we send these physical cards to you. Or for one week only, a COVID exception, we are offering these on PDF so you can download them. I prefer that you use them in, in real life. Um, but if you, if you can't and you think it's easier for you for a PDF, we will make them available this week only. So, considering all of this stuff, this morning, I want to teach on social justice and the way of Jesus. If you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 3, and I'll read our text from that place, and then I'll pray. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, asked the the, the, the religious leaders, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill, but they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man with the shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is God's word, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us, uh, 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 you would expand our vision 
of what it means to get involved in restorative justice, restorative social justice in our world right now. I know that there are a lot of people in our congregation that feel rage and anger and exhaustion, whether that's from um, the black experience of the way that our nation has viewed black bodies and treated black people, or it's from a, like a majority perspective where we're tired of having these conversations and trying to convince people around us that this is a thing, this is an issue that we need to get involved in, and we're just all exhausted. Would you lead us, Jesus? Show us your heart. May our motivation be and come from you, God. So take all of our angst, anger, stuckness, wherever we're at, whoever we are, whatever our ethnicity is or our family of origin, and we bring in all that to you and we say, form us and shape us and give us your heart for the world. In Christ's name, amen. It's hard to know what to say at a time like this. Our world seems to be on fire. The anger and the lament and the outrage for the way our nation and its systems have treated and treats people of color, it's unjust. And to some extent, I I believe we all know this, but to admit it to ourselves or to others is hard or easy depending on what political side you fall. Meaning, naming the racial injustice in our country right now will either betray or align you to a political side. But we're in church right now, digitally anyways, we're in church. And we have the privilege of dropping the American politics for a bit. And by that I mean we're followers of Jesus in here. And what God wants, we want. The justice he desires in our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, we want in our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. We can all agree on that. What God wants, we want. His justice, we want everywhere. So it doesn't matter if you're progressive or conservative, Republican or Democrat. Let's just throw out and throw aside all all of that right now to the best of our abilities and talk about what it means to live for justice or see justice like Jesus does. In our story, in Mark chapter three, there are three main characters that surround Jesus. They are the Pharisees, the man with a withered hand, and the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a, plays a huge and vital key role in this whole story. The Sabbath is what surrounded the controversy and what sets up the narrative tension in Mark chapter three. Notice verse two. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, meaning the religious leaders. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. At this point of the story of the Bible, the religious leaders, those tasked with interpreting and enforcing the law, the Torah law, made Sabbath, which was from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, the Sabbath, a day of prescribed, commanded, God-given rest into something that it was never intended to be. See, Sabbath was rooted in creation and redemption. We find this in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Sabbath was rooted in creation. So if you are a Christian now, you're like, do we need to Sabbath? It's in the law. I don't even know. It's rooted in creation. Yes, Sabbath should be very much a part of our lives. It's rooted in creation. Exodus 28. This is the Ten Commandments. Jesus, uh, God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. It's rooted in creation. God said, this is, the, this is the, the rhythm of creation. I worked and created for six days and I rested. I want you to live into the same rhythm. Okay, but not only that, it's rooted in redemption. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. See, slaves work seven days a week. Slaves never have time off. Slaves never get a break. But God says, you are free. You were slaves, but you are no longer. You're not a slave what, what, to whatever it is. You are free to rest. But for those in Jesus' day, who both interpreted and in many ways in that culture enforced the Jewish law, they had made this command that was really about remembering, reflecting, renewal, and redemption, all about not working. So they focused all their efforts in creating a system that kept people from breaking this law by not working. The Pharisees had 39 forbidden activities that on Sabbath that were, that were really intricate to make sure that, you know, we put all these boundaries around making sure that we don't break this commandment. Like how far can you walk and how can and can, how can you get involved in people's lives and how can you not get involved in people's lives? And if you broke one of these regulations, in their minds, you were in fact breaking God's law. Now, why is all this background around the Sabbath important for this teaching? Because in Jesus' day, the Sabbath had become a system that the religious authorities used to keep people in or keep people out. It was a system that was originally created and mandated by God to literally serve and protect humanity, to provide them rest and restoration. See, we see this in, in actually a couple verses up from Mark chapter three, just literally right before this, this story in Mark chapter three, at the end of Mark chapter two, Jesus says this right before the synagogue story. He says, then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was created to serve humanity with restoration, to protect humanity from overworking, like to overworking, to become like, you know, live in slave-like rhythms. That's not what God wants for his people. But what it had become in this story that we're reading today was a system that allowed for the continued infirmity of this man with a withered hand and the violent and a violent trap used to plot Jesus's death. Now, now, I hope this isn't too subtle for you. If it is, let me be more literal. When Jesus does the work of restorative social justice, he always subverts and goes after systems of injustice. Now, I, I wanted to make that a little bit more literal because I was, I was probably a little too subtle there. The, the Sabbath was a system of injustice and Jesus goes out to subvert systems of injustice. The Sabbath had become a system of injustice and Jesus exploits it and goes after it. Now, for some of you who are new or maybe even allergic to the term social justice, now I, I'll, I'll grant that, that is a very allergic term. When we use that term, we mean all kinds of different things. And if you're here listening, like why is a church talking, oh, this is one of these liberal churches or whatever. Allow me to describe and try to give you a distinctively Christian understanding of social justice. 
Social justice is often described by using the parable of babies in the river. And the parable goes like this. There was a group of campers on a riverbank who were just settling down for the, for the evening when one of them sees a baby in the water. He immediately dives in, braving all the current, and rescues this infant. And as he climbs ashore, another camper notices another baby in the river who needs help. And then another, and then another. And overwhelmed by the sheer number of babies, cramper, campers start grabbing passerbys and everyone else, cramp, like, help us, there's tons of babies in the water. And before long, the river is filled with desperate babies and more and more rescuers are required to assist campers. Now, unfortunately, not all the babies can be saved in this parable. And tragically, some of the brave rescuers occasionally drown as well. But they manage to mold themselves into an efficient life-saving organization. And over time, the entire infrastructure develops to support their efforts. They have hospitals and schools and foster cares and social services and trauma and victim support services and life-saving trainers and swimming, swimming instructors, etc. And at this point in the story, one of the rescuers starts walking upstream. Where are you going? The others ask. We need you here. Look how busy we are. Babies keep showing up in the river. The rescuer says to everyone, everyone stay here and carry on. I'm going upstream to find the idiot who keeps chucking all these babies in the river. Now, what the people who are dragging babies out of the river are doing in this parable is called charity work. And charity work is important Christian work. It's the work of bringing a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty. It's the work of clothing the naked. It's important work that we're all called to be involved in. But what charity work isn't that involved in is trying to get to the reasons why they are thirsty or naked or how there are so many drowning babies in the river. Social justice tries to go up the river and change the reasons that create homelessness, hunger, and racism. Social justice tries to look at the system we live in to bring about shalom to the whole system, economic, social, cultural, and religious. So charity is about giving hungry people bread. Social justice is about trying to change the system so that nobody has too much bread while some have no bread. Charity is about treating your neighbors with respect and without prejudice. Social justice is about becoming anti-racist. Social, social justice is about trying to change the way the world is organized, to shift the injustice towards the oppressed and marginalized people groups to make it a level playing field for everyone. Now I'll stop here. When I say that, when I end with making it a level playing field for everyone, I know that there are people people who are politically American, you're an American, you see the world as an American, and therefore you come with your own defenses and arguments on why that looks more like socialism or some political ideal that you don't want to vote for. And I understand that, but I want you to keep listening. We live in a system, a cultural system, an economic system, a social system, a justice system. A system that views black bodies as threatening and systematically oppresses red lines and destroys them. I have been, as a brown man, socialized in that same system. We also live in a system 
where men and women have sex with each other even though they are in no way committed to each other and do not wish to have children with one another, and one of the viable ways out of a pregnancy in this system is an abortion. We live in a cultural system where abortion is possible and, and, and honestly inevitable, and we live in a cultural system where racism is pervasive and implicit. Now, I could go on and name all the other parts of the system that we live in, but I wanted to make sure I offended everyone before I did. So hopefully I offended everyone at this point. So social justice is, are about systems and how they impact us and keep us all from human flourishing. Rollheiser, I know you've been waiting for his quote. Here it is. Social justice is, is about how systems affect us, especially adversely. It is very important that this be understood. It is not enough simply to be a good person with our own private lives. We can be morally impeccable within our private lives, church-going, prayerful, kind, honest, gentle, and generous in our dealings with others, and still, at the same time, unknowingly, participate and help sustain through work, our political affiliations, our economic ideology, our investments, and simply by our consumeristic lifestyle, systems which are far from charitable, gentle, prayerful, and moral. While the system gives us a good life, it is far less kind to others. To practice social justice is to examine, challenge, refuse as far as possible to participate in and try to change those systems, economic, social, political, cultural, and religious, that unjustly penalize, penalize some and e- as they unjustly reward others, end quote. And this quote, which I could unpack, but I'll just let that sit there for a bit. This brings me back to Jesus. With him in the synagogue on Sabbath Saturday, standing up front with a man next to him with a withered hand and the religious authorities in the crowd just waiting for Jesus to break the law so they can plot their violence against him. What does Jesus do? Now, before we get there, I think it's important to point out one more thing about social justice, and it is this. What is the distinctly Christian version of social justice? Because let's be completely honest here. Let's be completely honest. Justice warriors will align themselves with things that don't seem to match God's will as revealed in Scripture. That's, I'm just going to say it. That's true. People that advocate for justice on all fronts start to bleed into things that are that go against the teachings of the, of the scriptures. So what is social justice from a Christ-centered motivation? What is social justice in the way of Jesus? And this is an important question. For followers of Jesus, social justice has to do with truth and motivation, both. We need both of those. Our motivation is not political. Our motivation is not even economic. The motivation for followers of Jesus to move towards social justice is grounded in the Imago Dei and the cultural mandate from Genesis 1 and 2. This is where all of it like stems from. This is the motivation. This is the root of it all. Our justice work is motivated and grounded in the absolute equality of all human persons. And not just saying that, 
Not just saying that, but making sure that gets worked into all of our systems and resisting any system that does not believe that. And it's rooted in our respect and care for God's creation, the planet. In the language of the Gospels and the language of Jesus, the shorthand for this was God's kingdom, where God's rule rightly orders how we live in shalom with each other and God's world. So that's the motivation. That's the why behind all our social justice. So back to Jesus. What does he do? Caught between breaking the law and doing good for this disabled man. What does Jesus do? Caught between, do I heal him and break the law or do I break the law and do good? Jesus challenges the system. Look at verse four. Jesus asked them, the religious rulers, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or kill? This is where Jesus is masterful. By the Pharisees' own laws around the Sabbath, saving a life overrules the imperative of Sabbath observance. You're allowed to break all the rules of a Sabbath if it means to save a life. You can travel far, you can work, you can dig someone out of a ditch, whatever. You can break all, if it means saving someone's life, you can break all Sabbath rules. Meaning on Sabbath, you're allowed to save a life and it's not considered work. But here's where it gets super, super tricky. On the surface, this man with a shriveled hand is not dying. He is in no mortal danger. And if Jesus just waits a few hours, Sabbath will be over and he can heal this man man, no problem without breaking any law. But for Jesus, right here, Jesus makes withholding the cure for the man's paralyzed hand, even for a few hours, equal to killing him. And performing the cure immediately tantamount to saving his life. Which means for Jesus, human action either strikes a blow for life or welds one for death. Our actions, what we do as followers of Jesus, either strike a blow for life or weld one for death. It's either life or death, life or death, and the things that we do and how we treat one another. We're either adding life to someone or inadvertently causing their death. The cautious middle ground where we wait to do good and say, I'm going to hold off judgment, I'm not going to do anything right now, that has disappeared. That has disappeared in the age of Christ. Jesus won't allow for that middle ground anymore. Now, how do we know he doesn't allow for that anymore? How do we know this is actually an impulse to act right now? Well, after Jesus said this, save life or kill to do good. Like, right after Jesus says this, what does Mark tell us about the Pharisees and how they reacted? Look at what it says in verse four at the end. But they remained silent. The Pharisees didn't say a word. When Jesus said, should we do good or do bad? Should we save a life or kill? What should we do? And they said nothing. They remained silent. Remaining silent with no regards to shalom. Remaining silent with regards to working towards honoring the Imago Dei in each human life. Remaining silent in the face of systemic injustice is no longer an option. Those are no longer options. If you are silent, if you are withholding doing good, 
If you are withholding your removal of complicit partnership in the systemic racism or the sacredness of all life, inside or outside the womb, or whatever political thing you think is too political for you to get involved in right now, know this, Jesus is angry at those people. For those that are remaining silent, Jesus is angry. Which I think is my favorite part of this entire story because we can all relate to this. Not all of us can relate to his altruism. Not all of us can relate to his power to work miracles, his ability to outsmart the smartest people of his day. We can't relate to that, but all of us can relate to his anger. And his anger is pointed at those silent people in the room, those who remain silent, those who will not speak up against injustice, those who won't do anything when they have the power to do good right there. Those who are are too caught up in politics or law and order to get involved in what's right and good. And it says that in verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. These are very, very powerful words. Mark wouldn't use these words to describe how emotionally distressed Jesus was again until the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark only uses these words to describe Jesus twice, once here and once in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he was full of distress. When Jesus was about to face the horror of the cross and the shame of taking our sin upon his shoulders, only then and here does Mark say that Jesus was deeply distressed. And what is Jesus deeply distressed about? It says he was deeply distressed about their stubborn hearts. See, the greatest enemy of divine love and justice is not opposition. It's not even malice. It's the hardness of heart and indifference. Jesus gets so distressed and angry when we're indifferent, when we don't move, when we're stubborn, when we're we're stuck in our hard-heartness. See, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. And what does Jesus do next? Well, what he does next makes him worthy of all of our love and worship. What Jesus does next is why we sing. What Jesus does next is why he's our Lord and our Savior. Jesus knows if he heals this man, he chooses to bring him life. If he chooses to bring him life, it means that he will die. He himself. It means that he will set in motion a clash with the mob, with the law, with the rulers of the day that won't tolerate this radicalized rabbi. So what does Jesus do? He says to the man who's standing next to him up front, stretch out your hand. Now what's so beautiful about this is that Jesus involves this man as well. He's not just an innocent bystander. This man has to act himself. He has to be involved in his own liberation. He has to stretch out his hand in faith, and he does. Verse 5, he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. In this act of social justice towards this man, we see the seed of the crucifixion, and we also see the seed of the resurrection. And we need both in view to sustain the work of justice as followers of Jesus. See, the cross informs how we love. 
The cross, which is the, the seeds of it are right here. The cross informs how we love. We love self-sacrificially. We love with humility. And we love by laying down our rights for the sake of others. That's what we do as followers of Jesus. We lay down our rights for the sake of of others. We love self-sacrificially at the cost of ourselves, economically, at the cost of ourselves, even emotionally. We, we give our lives for the sake of others. But the resurrection also informs our social justice work as well. The resurrection informs how we hope. The resurrection, that means that no, even if we are fighting, and I say fighting in the nonviolent term, if we are advocating, if we are allies, if we are moving towards racial reconciliation, if we are moving towards justice in our cities, we need hope. Because you might be doing that for the rest of your life and you only see the needle move a little bit. And then something else happens and this uproar happens all over again and it keeps doing that and cycles over and over again. You need the hope of the resurrection to sustain your activism. The lawyer and social activist of the 60s, William Stringfellow, once scolded a peace group by saying, I notice in your conversations one major omission. The mention of the resurrection of Jesus. The victory of God over the forces of death is already assured and our modest task in peacemaking is simply to live in the way that reveals that fact. We do not have to triumph over the forces of death by our own inspiration, efforts, and strategy. We do not have to defeat death all over again. Psalm 58 tells us, surely there is a God who rules the earth. We must never forget that. Hope and not anger must direct our protest. Moreover, that hope, belief in the power of the resurrection, is not a feeling or a mood. It is a necessary choice for survival. Our hope is that God is going to make all things new. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus that the worst thing is always, not always the last thing. Our hope is that we can keep fighting in the, non, in, in the nonviolent way, advocating and moving towards justice in the hope that God will ultimately make all things new. I want to close with, uh, with the words from Rollheiser again. He says, the fuel that fires our quest for justice must be drawn from the same source as the truth of justice itself, namely from the person, the teaching of Jesus. Only by rooting ourselves there or in similar principles that somehow take their root in God will we find both the right vision and the right energy to offer a new order, a just one to the world. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray that we, that we would be advocates, allies, and workers for renewal. Right now, it seems our world is on fire because of the racial injustice of our world. Lord, I pray for those who don't see their, um, uh, their complicity, even the church's complicity in the, the, the system of racism, I pray that you would open our eyes to know that we're all a part of it. It's in our bones and that we would do the work, the right work of reordering and renewing the system. But that's, 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 that's what's going on right now and there's all sorts of other 
unjust and unjust things in our world that we, as your people, must be a part of as well. So this is a long road, not only for racial reconciliation, but for every other kind of form of renewal. And so we pray that you would sustain us with the motivation that comes from the cross and the resurrection over the long haul. I pray for, for Christian advocates, allies. I pray for, for Christian activists that would do this for the rest of their lives. And they would, they would do it with humility. They do it with wisdom. And they would do it to where they would live in such a way that the people that see them, like, I want your vision of life to be true. I want the way that you see humanity and this planet to be true. I want it to be true because it's beautiful. May that be said of us, God. May we rise above any political stance, political party, or political ideology. May all of it be submitted. All of it submitted to your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.